Hi there. A quick note about the backstory before we begin today's episode. For those of you who have been following us for a while, you know that we typically release episodes on Tuesdays. But ever since we started to enhance our YouTube video, it is taking us a little bit longer to release the episodes. So we've decided on a happy compromise. For those who listen on podcast platforms, you're going to find the episodes on Tuesdays. For those who listen on YouTube, you're going to get the episode on Wednesday. Okay, enjoy today's episode, which, by the way, is going to feature music from A Fox from the album Memoirs of a Junkie. Thank you, A Fox, for granting us permission to use a few clips. And we're going to put a link to the full album in our episode notes. Make sure you check it out. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? Oh, I can hear you now. Good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. We're working on a story about about drug abuse. And um, what we were looking for is some input from someone who's been through the experience and who can kind of talk um, anonymously, obviously, about your experience. Maybe even start by telling us what it was that you you were addicted to. Um, I used to be addicted to to marijuana and not just marijuana, though it was um, anything, anything to give me that high. It was not just one particular um, drug that I was, because sometimes um, you've been, you get opportunities where you pop pills, get opportunities where you take um, um, cough syrup. Today on The Backstory, we are going to talk addiction. In Nigeria at this time, the most common type of addiction is to drugs. And there's already a ton of content out there about the drug abuse problem in our country. We know that all geopolitical zones are affected, and the top three zones are the Northeast, the Southwest, and the South-South. We know that 25% of users are women, and 75% are men. The most commonly used drugs are cannabis, followed by opioids such as codeine, tramadol, and cough syrups. We know the health consequences of drug use. Drug abuse will lead to addiction or dependency, and high-risk drug users, those who inject, are at risk of HIV, hepatitis, and other bloodborne diseases. And we know the social consequences of addiction. Students who become addicted do much worse in school. Users often cannot hold down jobs. Families get torn apart. We know the who, the what, the when, and the where. And for about 50 years now, we have also known the why. But we rarely talk about why. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and Around the 1960s and into the 1970s, the United States started to have a drug problem. And so the U.S. did what it always does when it has a problem. 
it convened a bunch of expert scientists together to figure out the cause of the problem and to come up with a solution. So at that time, the scientists decided to run a bunch of experiments. Now, when it comes to experiments about drugs, you can't use human beings. It's not ethical. So instead, the scientists decided to use laboratory rats. Now, the thing about rats is that they are social creatures. And if you ever see a rat around your house, you better believe that it's not just that one rat. There are going to be many more. Rats live in clusters. But the scientists decided to put these rats in a cage, and each rat got its own cage. Now, on one side of the cage, there was a lever or a button that the rat would press. And the rat also had an intravenous needle that was implanted into its neck. Whenever the rat would press a button, it would get a shot of heroin that would go through the needle and directly into its blood. So you got a rat alone in a cage by itself, press the button, it would get a shot of heroin. The point of this experiment was to see how much the rat would press the button. How long would it take for the rat to become addicted? The more it would press the button, the more addicted it became. The result was that the rats that were put into these cages would press the button over and over and over again. Sometimes to the point where they would overdose and die. So based on this experiment, the conclusion was that drugs like heroin are very addictive and that as long as they are available in a society, people just like the rats, would not be able to help themselves. This set of experiments essentially launched the war on drugs, which, by the way, the United States is still fighting to this day. And the idea behind the war on drugs was basically to remove the supply of drugs from society. Because if you have a supply, people are not going to help themselves. They're going to use it just like the rats did. At least that was the idea at the time. And then this guy named Bruce Alexander came along. I'm a psychologist with Simon Fraser University. And Dr. Alexander, he ran a different type of experiment. Instead of keeping the rats in isolation, he decided to create a rat park. Now, the rat park, this is like a rat's dream. It was a much larger playground area that had everything a rat could possibly want. It had food, it had toys, and it had other rats. Now, the park also had two water bottles. One of the water bottles just had water. The other one had water that was mixed with heroin. So now, the scientists decided to take the rats. The rats that had been in isolation, the ones that were addicted, they took them out of their cages of isolation and brought them into the rat park. Now, you would expect that the rats would then go and drink all the water that had heroin in it, right? Wrong. What actually happened was that the rats, which had been addicted, spent most of their time hanging around the park. And when they wanted water, they actually preferred the water without the heroin. This research finding was groundbreaking because it showed that it wasn't the access to heroin that was the problem. Other factors drove the rats 
in the first experiment to take heroin, rats are social creatures and putting them in a box by themselves meant that they were isolated. They had no social bonds. So the box was a very unnatural environment for them. Now transfer them to a rat park and all those problems went away. And so did their dependence on heroin. Humans, just like rats, are social creatures, and we also have our own version of the rat park. The human park consists of the families and the communities that we're born into, the religions that we practice, the schools that we attend, the work that we do, the sports and other recreational activities, and the relationships that we keep. The human park is rich with activities that require interaction. At least, it should be. But in Nigeria at this moment, it's not. It used to be. But as we've been moving more and more towards modern living, we're in a moment right now where our human park is breaking down. And with that, we're becoming more and more isolated. Because isolation is painful, we go and we press the button. We're looking for ways to numb the pain. And that's where addiction comes in. In the beginning of this episode, you heard an interview that I did with a recovering addict. And to protect his identity, we're going to call him David. I'm going to play parts of the interview now, and I invite you to think about the experiment and the concept of a human park as you listen to David. Do you remember how old you were when when you first started? Yeah. Sure, sure. I was in um I was in SS2. Um SS2, SS3, that's um 2010. Um 2010. 2010 is um 2010 is 11 years. 2010 is 11 years ago. And so how old would you have been around that time? Um I would be I'm 27 right now, so I will be I was probably 17, 16, thereabout. It was after I finished school, and then um, I didn't get admission the first year, so the frustration pushed me um, to kind of start using. A lot of people don't know that um, drug abuse or any of those kind of abuse is, is like a byproduct of, of something that... Um, either stress, either um, family issues, either whatever, but it's something that people people use these things to escape. And in my own, in my own case, I was using it because I was escaping a lot of um, family issues. Um, my parents were divorced, um, young guy trying to figure out life on his own and all that stuff like that. So it was more of like an escape for me. It was it was tough for me growing up, to be honest. It was very tough growing up, coming from a divorced home. Dad was it was just I and my mom. My my older siblings were way ahead of me, so um, I had this liberty and I had this freedom. So it was more or less just me and my mom that were around. You get so growing up, trying to figure out life on my own. So you said at that age, you were sort of trying to figure out life on your own. And what was it that that you felt like you needed to figure out at that age? 
I, I needed I needed a father figure, to be honest. I needed a father figure. I, I needed direction. I needed someone I could look up to. I needed someone that could show me the ropes. Because um, obviously, gr- growing up the way I grew up was not really, it's not really an ideal way to grow up. Most people that do drugs, is a need. I feel like it was solving a need. It was, it was fulfilling a need at that time. At the time that you were you were using the substances, did you did you feel like they actually fulfilled the need for you at that time? Uh, you nah, you was it was ignorance because I feel like at that point it was it was based the need that the drugs was feeling for me was the fact that I needed a father figure in my life, and I was going through so much like so much stress, so much pain, so much anger so much um, in, uh, feelings of insecurities, feelings of betrayal. It's just a whole lot of emotional baggage I was just dealing with at that point. So that in itself was um, kind of like, was me take, doing all those things was an attempt to fulfill that need. As I was listening to David speak, he was essentially describing a process where he was becoming like the rats that were living in isolation. There was the lack of interaction with his father, and he didn't have a peer group of siblings or relatives around him. Now, even with all of that going on in his home life, David actually managed to get through the first 16 years of his life without doing drugs. And part of that might have been that maybe the drugs were not available to him, but another part might have been because David still had school, and at school, he was at least able to fulfill the fundamental human need to connect. He was still able to form social bonds because of school. But then there was that one year when he didn't get admission into university. And that year, he lost the one part of his park that allowed him to fight off the feelings of isolation. And at that point in his life, David wasn't very religious, and that's actually quite common. Most people around the ages of 18 to 29 are not very connected to religion. So David found comfort in drugs, and he found other people who were also seeking comfort, trying to get away from their own pain. And for the next three to four years, David started to spiral out of control. So once you started, you know, you said it, it's family issues, frustration, figuring, trying to figure out your life. Once you started, did you at some point get to a point where you yourself just couldn't control it anymore? There was a time where um, there was no drugs anywhere, right? And it was scarce to get. And I needed to get high. And so um, I resulted to... Mixing, I can't really remember what I mixed. I, I shall know that at that point, I just mixed mixed some concussion just to get high. And when I smoked, it it was terrible. Like I, I felt like my chest was contracting. I felt like I was going to die. You get so um at at that point, I wasn't really very spiritual. I wasn't really a spiritual person, but um. At that point, I just, I was like, you know what, God, I just had to pray. Like, 
I knelt down in my room that day and I, I asked God, just help me. Like, I'm helpless right now because obviously this thing is, has taken control over me. And that was like, that was in 2014, May 31st, 2014. So when I said that prayer, I remember I went back to my friend's apartment that the following day and I told them my experience. I was like, bro, you guys know that X, Y, Z happened, blah, blah, blah. And they laughed at me. So most of them gave me an ultimatum. They were like, next week you'll come back. And um, it's over seven years now. And the only time I called my friends, just check up on them and just show them love. Um, when I look back at my life right now, I'm just grateful to God that um, it happened the way it happened because... Um, I'm grateful that I didn't go deeper into stronger, um, stronger, much stronger drugs. Because obviously, bad taking that route, I would have really been dependent on maybe a stronger drug like coke or um, maybe heroin or one of these crack, crack or any of these um, powerful drugs. You know, because the trajectory my life was heading to was actually going that direction. So. Now, I'm going to play another part of the interview with David. This is where he describes his decision to stop. And I want you to listen closely to what David did after he decided to stop. And um, afterwards, that was when um, I really got closer to God. That's the Christian God. I'm a, I'm a Christian. So I got closer to God. I started going to church. I started, I changed my company instantly and it was because I had influence, right, on campus at that time. Maybe that happened, I switched company. I, I, I disconnected myself instantly from them and then I started, there were, there were things I started listening to. I started listening to um, like messages, like spiritual messages. So... I was just listening to stuff. I was intentional about building my mind, like building my mental capacity. So I started reading books. I started listening to all kinds of messages. I started listening to stuff that inspired me to build capacity, to, to like discover myself. And when I started doing that, like, when that knowledge started hitting me, I started becoming confident in myself. And then um, I started having hope. Yeah, that was one of the things that happened. I started having hope because prior to that time, it was more like I was kind of like hopeless. Like I knew I could do a whole lot of things, but it was more like I, I didn't discover. I was like, I was not comfortable in my skin. You get, I, I was not in only like I didn't know what I wanted from life. I didn't know what I want. Like now, if you ask me what do you want, I know what I want from life now. Like I know exactly what I want to do. I know exactly what I want. But it was not there before. So the frustration and hopelessness made me keep just wallowing in that. So what do you want from life? <laughs> well um i at this point 
at this point, um, I feel like um, he's in phases. My life is in phases. But at this point, I just want to be happy and do right by the people I care about. I just want to be happy and do right by my family and friends. Take care of my family and friends and be happy. That's all. This is what I want from life. So now let's think back to the experiment of the rat park. David was and is essentially rebuilding his human park. It wasn't that the drugs were no longer available to him. He could find them if he wanted them. But what he did is he chose to take himself out of his isolation. He looked around the park and he started to rebuild it. He started to reestablish his connections first with the church community, then his family and friends. And then David also did something else. He started to live for other people. He started serving others as his mission. And this is such a critical part of it because human beings are not meant to live as individuals. I understand what the world is telling us. I understand capitalism, free market competition. I get it. But human beings are not meant to live as individuals. So when we start to design our homes, our families, our environments towards individualism, that's when all of these issues of addiction start to increase. Now, we've been talking about David's experience at an individual level, but now I want you to think of David's experience as representing the experience of a growing number of young people in Nigeria. Since the 1980s, every single part of the human park has been breaking down in this country. Even as more and more of us are going online and using social media, we are becoming more and more disconnected from the experiences that matter. And just like the rats in isolation, we are reaching for that button because our lives and our environment are becoming more and more unnatural. We've been moving away from the extended family structure where we had three or four generations living in the same compound. Now we have nuclear families where it's just the parents and the children. Now this automatically means that there are fewer social interactions that are happening, especially within peer groups. The school system would have helped replace some of the breakdown in extended family structure. That's if we had functional school systems. Schools are supposed to be a time when young people ages 3 to 25 are occupied primarily with learning social development and skills acquisition. This is the time when they're forming social bonds with their peers. In 2013, Nigeria had about 56% enrollment in secondary schools. So over 40% of school-age children are not in school. And by 2016, that number had dropped to 42%. So more than half of school-age children now are not in school. So we've got two parts now of our human park that are at risk, the extended family structure and our school system. What do we have left? Well, there's work, and work is a significant part of the human park, especially for grown-ups. On average, around the world, people spend at least 30 hours a week at work. And most work is interactive. So there's another opportunity for social bonding. And according to the World Bank, only 48% of Nigerians aged 15 and up were employed in 2020. So about half of the population that is supposed to be working is not working. 
So we've gotten rid of the extended family, we don't have our schools, and now we don't have work. Next, let's take a look at social and recreational activities. And in most countries, this really mostly involves sports. Now, involvement in extracurricular activities like sports usually starts from school. And since, and since 50% of the school age population is not in school, that means the participation in recreational activities is likely going to be low. The last part of the human park is religion. Now, in Nigeria, we are exposed to religion from birth. But around the world, young people ages 18 to 29, they tend to be a bit more disconnected from religion. A study was done in 2014 by Pew Research Center, where they showed that only about 27% of adults ages 18 to 29 went to religious service at least once a week. So here we are, a drug dealer's dream. About 15% of our population, it's between 15 and 24 years old. That's about 30 million young people. People who are looking to find their way. People who are looking for community, for genuine connection to other human beings. And we've denied them that. We've denied them access to a functional human park. A park where they can worship, where they can go to school, where they can go to work. These are all the places where they would have had the opportunities to form the bonds that every human being needs. Is it then a surprise that they wake up and push the button? So, what do we do? We do what David did. We reclaim our religions from extremists. We establish systems of schools that work for us. We enable and support businesses like mine that hire young people, and we stop being afraid of each other. We rebuild our parks, just like David did. So, what happened to David once he rebuilt his park? Ever since I saw the vision, no more television, cause I'm on a mission. The mission gives me discipline, no time to hate, procrastinate. Insecurities kept gripping in, mental stress, the cuff looking like I'm gonna fail. Cuts and, I'm at a point in my life where I, I don't joke with a whole lot of things. I don't joke with therapy. I don't joke with my girlfriend. I don't joke with my friends. I don't joke with my career. Like, I don't joke with... Because those are the things that, are, like, keep me going. Like, those are things that... Community, yeah, I, I really don't joke with community at the end of the day because I feel like with community, with help, with support, with people that don't judge you, um, you you most likely will be less hooked to substance abuse and all those kind of things like that. Like the stakes in my life are very high, right? I have a whole lot of people depending on me. Like I have people depending on my the decisions I make on a daily. So for the sake of those people, I find healthier ways to distress myself. Now, am I saying that I don't go out with friends? We don't we don't have a great time. Of course, we do, but. It's in proportion, you get. It's not like, it was not like before where I'm helplessly bound to consistently just using. Right now, when I look back at my life, I'm just grateful I took that decision because I have skills right now that are, pay, are paying me. I'm not, I'm not broke, you get. So I'm in a place where I can help my family, I can help my friends. So I'm just 
really, really grateful to God for all that that happened at the end of the day. Because when I ever look back at it, I wouldn't even change a thing. That's the truth. I wouldn't change a thing. If I, they say I should look back and say, what would you change? I'll say nothing. Because I, 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 I learned to forgive my parents a whole lot. A whole lot. So I just feel like most of the times when, when people see young people are hooked on something, you don't just judge and just say, hey, stop it. Don't do this. I, I create options for people. It takes time to build. It takes time to coming from where I'm coming from. Like it takes a whole lot of hard work. It takes patience. It takes focus. But I'm getting to that point at this point right now in my life. I'm getting to that point where at least I can afford to do what I really want to do and execute my goals. So it wasn't like, because the past seven years was just grinding for me, straight up grinding. Like, you know, just hard work. Even when nobody was telling me thank you, when nobody was paying attention to me, I just kept putting in work. But at this point in my life right now, I feel like I have the leverage to really do what I want to do. So yes, right now I, I'm at that point where I can be happy and take care of my family and friends. What would you What would you say to to someone who is still in in that early phase, the phase that you were in, you know, ten years ago or so when you were still using? What would you say to them? I'll tell them I love them. I'll tell them I are not alone. I'll tell them they shouldn't give up. I'll tell them there is help. It's possible. It's possible to know what you want. It's possible to um, to um, figure out life. It's possible to be confident about life. It's possible to achieve your goals and dreams. That's what I'll tell them. I'll sell them a dream. I guarantee you, you sell them a dream. Most people, like I said, it's it's deeper than it's deeper than what people think. It's if it is somebody using it, it's deeper. It's either family issues, hopelessness, um, poverty, lack. It's hopelessness that is pushing people to do a whole lot of things that people are doing. Hmm. So I'll just love them and sell them a dream. Hmm. So seven seven years sober, congratulations, and we are wishing you many, many, many more years and decades of sobriety. Thank you. Thank you. To all the young people who are listening to this, do not wait for the politicians to sell you a dream because they stopped dreaming a long time ago. You can still look to them for guidance, but if you're looking for a dream to chase, Look to each other and dream big together. Then chase the dream, not the drugs. Once again, special thanks to AFOX for granting us permission to use your music. The name of the album is Memoirs of a Junkie. The link is in our episode notes. And also, thank you to David for granting us the interview and sharing your experience. But
no shortcuts to destiny. Uh, finna take the long cut home. Meditational, climb my thoughts. Headphones blasting, listen to his words. Shepherd and two edge of swords. Uh, cause I need protection from my soul's projections. So much depression. I need directions. A sort of separation. Speak a few times as a liberation. Me and God in the conversation. The backstory is brought to you by Triple E Media Productions. Production copyright 2021 Triple E Media Productions. If you enjoyed this episode of The Backstory and want to hear more, subscribe to our 234 Audio YouTube channel. Episodes of this podcast and our other podcasts can also be found on our website, 234audio.com, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Backstory was produced by Ramat Mohammed, Dominic Tabakaji, and Sam Tabakaji. Executive Producer Ramat Mohammed. Special thanks to Antonieta Kalunta, Richard Anyabe, Alexandra Gekpe, Nabila Usman, John Iwodi, and Mala Iwa Bagdu Ikaleku. If you are interested in sponsoring this program, reach out to us at 0818-230-1234 or email us at info at 234audio.com. I'm Ramat Mohammed. See you next week.